Podcast. The Gospel according to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. Alrighty, happy church. It is that time to head back to the Bible and God's living, breathing, active word sent from heaven. You know, the scriptures are God-breathed. That's the word. The breath of God brings us life everlasting. We look forward to what he has for us in his word. Matthew 16 is where we're headed. We're going to go there right after we ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Father God, as we look to you, as we always do, we just want to admit that unless you help us, we cannot understand anything that's spiritually discerned. We need your spirit to help us with these truths, to understand them, to know why you've gathered us together, to look at this particular passage and this particular day. We know that you predestined us to be here for this moment. So... Help us get the most out of this opportunity. Eyes that can see, ears that can hear, and a heart that's willing and ready to do the will of God. In Jesus' name, amen. It was Carl Sagan, astronomer, uh, very smart guy, uh, at least when it comes to stars and constellations. And something he said really went viral, something that we all say today. And here's the quote. There are naive questions, tedious questions, ill-phrased questions, but every question is a cry to understand the world. There's no such thing as a dumb question. Ah, he's the one who first said that. But, my friends, there is indeed something called a dumb question. (laughs) And we just heard one last week, last time I spoke, and those dumb questions are going to keep coming from the Pharisees who are asking questions of Jesus, but they're not questions at all. They're, they're, They're a pretense. They're pretend questions. They're fake questions. In fact, it says that in order to test him, to tempt him, to trip him up, they're asking that question. My friends, if you're trying to pull a fast one on God, that's a dumb thing to do. That's just not smart. You're going to lose every time. And they are not the only ones asking questions. Maybe you don't know this, but Jesus asked questions of his own. 307 single questions Jesus asks 
as recorded in the gospel. It's one of his favorite teaching tools to help people come to the knowledge of the truth. It's much easier at times when you kind of help them along the way to discover it themselves, an aha moment, right? Instead of you just putting it out there for them to go, aha, right? Because of a, of a well-worded question, that's what our Jesus does. And out of the 307, Today, wow, the question he asks is a big one. It's a little bigger than big because uh, life and death hangs in the balance of how you answer this question. To answer incorrectly is to miss the whole point of life. You will have a wasted human precious life if you don't answer this correctly and but to answer it correctly, the floodgates of heaven open up and outpours onto your little life the favor of the Most High God just by answering a question correctly. So you want to get this one right, my friends. So let me show you what we're talking about, picking up at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, most northern part of Israel, he asked his disciples, who do people out there say the Son of Man is his favorite title for himself from Daniel chapter 7? Just means the Messiah, the glorious Messiah. Who do they say that I am? He's saying. They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answers for all of them as usual. <laughs> You're the Christ, Messiah. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek. Same word. The son of the living God. The incarnation of God himself. Whoa. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by any man, but by my Father, God in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church in the gates of Hades. King James says hell. It's really better phrased Hades. I'll explain why. Will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And now something that's very intriguing and hard to understand, but we'll get to it, Lord willing. Whatever you bind the church, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's Jewish language and you have to take a minute to understand what he's uh, implying there. Then he warned his disciples, it's not the right time. Don't stir up the hornet's nest. It's, it's all about timing, my friends. So don't tell don't go out there and just make a video and put it online, you know, that he was the Christ. If we're contemporizing verse 20, he's saying, keep this knowledge on the down low for now, right? It's not the right time. So there you have well-known, well-loved words to think about this morning, invaluable insights, really timely comfort. We're living in a crazy world, and it's really nice to hear that the church we are the church. It's founded on something that's immovable. Not even the powers of hell could come against. It's a really nice time to be in this 
passage for sure. And so we see bottom line that the hope of heaven, the bedrock of Christianity, if anybody ever wanted to know, well, what's the bottom line? You know, it's Jesus is Lord, who Jesus Christ is. That's the question. It comes down to this. Who do you say I am? And so, note takers, we'll divide it up. Three nice little points. Number one, we'll hear what the unbelieving crowds think, verses 13 and 14. Then the shift is going to focus, and this is what God always does. It's like we're talking about how messed up the world is. Oh, yeah, they think this, they're crazy, all of this. And then suddenly it goes... And how about you? Let's talk about you right now. It's like, oh, oh, wow, how do you do that, God? But he does that. And so verses 15 through 17, we shift back to what we believe as his followers about him. And then we finish up with, if you answer the question correctly, there's so many blessings that Jesus starts to elaborate on those uh, benevolent blessings that flow when you get the question right. It's kind of like hitting that proverbial jackpot, for sure, spiritually speaking. And all three little words, Jesus is Lord, that he is God. So let's dive in, and we start with the general consensus of the lost world, the verses now appearing. There they hike up 25 miles from the Sea of Galilee to the northernmost border. In fact, right on that border, you'll have Syria and Lebanon uh, to the west. It's right that you can't go any further than uh, Caesarea Philippi. And um, Jesus asked the 12, well, what's the word on the street? Oh, what are they? Who do they think I am? What are they saying? What's the rumor mill out there? And the answer is, well, Lord, lots of ideas out there. Some think you're John the Baptist, who was beheaded a few months before. <laughs> some think you're Elijah, the prophet, who died 900 years <laughs> earlier. And some go, well, we'll do you better. Jeremiah, who died 600 years earlier than that. And then uh, one of the prophets, you know, Jonah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, come back from the dead. Maybe that. that's the answer. Okay. So the setting here is important. Caesarea Philippi, named after Philip Caesar. Actually, it was Caesar Augustus' son, Philip. And so in honor of him, the region got named Caesarea Philippi. It's a border town, as I mentioned. Not a lot of Jews lived there because of the pagan idolatry. It was the most wicked town in all of Israel. And one writer said it was the Sin City, it was the Las Vegas, or where it was where a lot of Gentiles who did worship in immoral, terrible, vile images and did all kinds of unspeakable, uh, terrible things in their worship. It was where Gentiles lived, but also where the where um, Jews would go as well, uh, who weren't walking in the light, and so it was just a hotbed of all things horrible. The town was named, the town itself there is named Peneus after the god Pan, and that was the goat man god, right, who was leading everybody with his little fife and his allurement, uh, and really in the name is implied to do the wild thing, and the wild thing is really the unspeakable 
uh, blasphemous things that would go on in that place. And so there at the foot of Mount Hermon is this Peneus, where you go, you make a stop. If you come with us next year or the year after that, we're planning to go. And here's what it looks like. You go climb all over this place. It's loaded with people, as you can see in the picture, that little opening in the cave there uh, was where a temple was fixed to there, and that's where they did their vile practices. And there were temples and shrines all over the place there. And, and inside of that, what they called the gates of Hades. Do you get Jesus going to have a word about the gates of Hades? And that's why he brought them there to proclaim the truth of who he is among all of these other gods and goddesses. He picks the place. The place is important. Uh, inside that terrible dark cavern is a, what was a bottomless pit because they tried to measure and no cord was long enough. They could not. So they called it the bottomless pit or the gates of Hades, Hades meaning the departed spirits, right? And so they saw it there as a, uh, they would throw all of their animals that they sacrificed, their carcasses, down into the abyss, they called it there. And so there they were doing all this. This is how it might have looked an artist's rendering. And that's what you picture when Jesus is standing there asking his question, what a genius our God is. He brings them to the place where every 20 feet there's a shrine to some god or goddess and everybody worshiping in their own way what seems best to them. And he goes and stands in the middle of it with his disciples and says, what about me? Where do I fit in in all of this chaos? Do you see? He's making a point there. He goes to the most sinful place on earth to ask these questions about who he truly is. So in the midst of the statue of Pan and Zeus and Aphrodite with incense burning, and you could look all over the place and see people bowing to the shrines while he's saying, well, who am I? Who am I in the midst of all these objects of worship? And so the sad answers start to flow. Sad answers then. Sad answers now. And, and here's the funny thing. There's no excuse for anything that they say. There's no excuse. Because he's speaking clearly to the crowds. He's saying things like, I came down from heaven. He's saying things like, I and the Father are one. He's being very clear that he's more than a prophet, more than the temple, more than the Sabbath. There's no excuse. If anybody wants to know the truth, God is a revealer. He says, ask and I'll answer. Seek, you'll find. Knock and the door will be open. That's just the way it is. And so, yeah, if you want to know, he obligates himself by himself and says, I swear by myself, I will reveal the truth to you. But this crowd is like, willfully confused. <laughs> They're like, he's John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Well, John was dead, right? So they thought, well, Herod is the one who killed John the Baptist in the most unseemly way. And he's the one who started the rumor because he said, oh, a man who's doing signs and wonders? It's my guilty conscience. Oh, no, it's John up from the grave. You know, deja vu, here he comes. Justice will be served. 
And so people started to believe that like some Hollywood script. And then that's strike one. And then he says, you know, Lord, they think you're Elijah. Actually kind of a good guess, really, because Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, there's a prophecy. And it says, before the day of the Lord comes, which we would call Armageddon, or the Great Tribulation, God will send Elijah. And so we expect that in the Great Tribulation, there will be an appearance by Moses and Elijah. But that's to come. So they got a little confused. And they think, well, maybe this is Elijah there. But Jesus clarified it and said, actually, it refers to John the Baptist, because John the Baptist came before Jesus. And he was very much like Elijah. He came in the spirit. He dressed like him. He talked like him. He ministered like him. So Jesus says in Matthew 17, if you would like, Elijah has already come. That was John the Baptist. And they abused him. They did not receive him. So strike two. Number three, Jeremiah. Now, my commentaries all said nobody really knows why they would think he's Jeremiah. But I honestly, I thought, well, isn't it obvious? Because Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. He was always crying, and he was always grieved. And in Jeremiah 4, he cries out about the destruction of Jerusalem, almost word for word, with what Jesus does when he comes down the Mount of Olives, and he, and he knows what's coming, the rejection, and then the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. He sees it, and he weeps. Ah, oh, well, there, somebody was paying attention and says, you know, he's, he's reminded me of Jeremiah. And by the way, yeah, he was a man acquainted with sorrow and suffering. But the Bible also says Jesus was anointed with joy more than any other human being. Jesus walked that balance. He, uh, there was a lot of grief in his heart. He's looking in a world. He said, I, I came down from heaven. I am the light of the world, but here's my verdict. John chapter 3, here's my verdict. Men don't like the light. Men and women, they prefer darkness. And they don't come to me to be saved. So, of course, his heart is grieved, and he has a lot of tears about that. And then what I really like is the last answer, and I kind of give them a hard time, the non-committed type, the, the ones who just say, oh, he's some kind of religious guy, whatever. You know, they do, they're, they're the indecisive. They're, they're like, yawn, you know, whatever. He's some prophet. Uh, can I get back to my own life right now so I can do whatever I want? It's the safe answer. One writer said this about the non-committed ones. Like today, lots of thoughts about Jesus. People are willing to affirm Christ as a good religious teacher or a moral example, but deny what the nice teacher claimed. In other words, and I've said this and used this, it works. You get somebody and they'll say, who was Jesus? And they'll say, well, he's a good teacher. I'm like, well, then why don't you do what he says? <laughs> if he's such a good teacher, you just said it. And then you know what they say to that? They say, well, well you know, you're saying he said that, but how do we know what he said? Well, then how can you judge if he's a good teacher or not? if you don't use the Bible. And so then once you get him to admit that he's a good teacher and that you ought to listen to a good teacher and do what the good teacher says, which is repent of your sins, trust in the Lord, give him, his, give him your life, then they just change the script. 
to say, well, we're not really sure what he really said. Okay, you know, that's, I'm sure that happened back in those days as well. And so, nice try. The idea with some people is if I don't say anything, I don't say anything bad, I just say, yeah, some religious guy out there, whatever, and if I stay neutral, you know, I'll fare better. The answer to that is no, you won't. No, you won't, because the Bible and Jesus do not permit neutrality when it comes to the identity of the one who spoke and made the universe, who knit you together in your mother's womb, who gives you breath and allows your heart. He just, just says, listen, you cannot say, I don't know. You can't say that to the one who keeps your life alive. He doesn't permit that. He says, I don't know. He's just some religious guy. He says, that's an answer. And it's the wrong one. And at some level, you know that. Romans chapter 1, men are without excuse because the evidence that there is a God, and it's not you, <laughs> is encoded in creation. That we can see the very nature of God by what has been made. His fingerprints are on everything for a good reason. Because his heart is that nobody perish, but that everybody come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. And so, you know, I, I, I just give them a little bit more of a hard time. Listen, if you're not with me, Jesus says, you're against me. And if you're not on my team helping restore things, you're, uh, you're part of the problem helping destroy things. So clearly, the crowds are missing it. They're dismissing his claims. You know, willful ignorance, you know, saying, hey, I, I'm interested in the truth. Show me. You know, there's a problem. Take your hands off your face. All right. So second, one, he says he's going to turn the, the tables on them, you know, just when they're feeling good about themselves. Next slide, please. Just when they're thinking, oh, I'm so much better than them, those dummies. They think you're the Baptist, you know, the blind leading the blind, and then it goes, Whoom. what about you? Oh, I know they're messed up. Doesn't it feel good to talk about how messed up everybody else is except you? And then it goes, well, no, 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 I want to talk about you during this crisis. Oh, we've talked a lot about the world and the politics and all of this, and there's so we've gone for volumes and volumes and days and days of accusations and judgments. And then in the stillness of the night, God will say, and what about you? What about you? How crazy are you? How kind are you? How self-controlled are you? That's what he does. That's what he does. And so there it is. What about you? And what do you think? And Peter blurts it out. He's not talking to Peter personally. People miss this. He's talking to the 12. But Peter, as usual, he says, pick me, pick me, pick me. You know, I got the answer. He doesn't even do the pick me, pick me. He just says, I'm picking myself. Here it is. This is the answer for all of us, including he thinks Judas. Oh, yeah, he's speaking for Judas, but uh, little does he know that, G that Judas, much more interested in money than Messiah. So he stays blind the whole time because all he can see is what's in the sack. Because John tells us he used to help himself to what was in there. And that kept him from eternal life. What a terrible trade. Oh, 
the sting of hell, the gnashing of teeth part in hell, comes for, for the, the trade, the, un, the, the, <laughs> the unworthiness of that which we sell our souls away. It's just, it just terrible. Jesus, what would it profit you if you gained, let's say, the whole world? But you perish, your own soul, you lose your own soul. Was it worth getting the whole world? And Judas would say, yeah, no, I thought so then. But anyway, he answers for everybody as the light gets shined on them. What about you? And he says, you're the Messiah. You're the one. The Messiah means the one. He's it. <laughs> you're God's chosen path exclusively to eternal life, to heaven. That's what it means. It's that he's the only way to be saved. That's really what Messiah means. The exclusive chosen way to be saved. The Savior, the only one. And then Peter just is trying to say, I mean, God reveals it to him, the highest title he can think of. And you don't get higher than the son of the living God in a different way than we are sons of God. This implies the incarnation, the essence of God himself, the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his being, as Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 does say. And so Jesus, no doubt, has a big smile. He blurts it out. You see it there. You're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're the one. And then, you know, the bell goes off. You know, if you've been to Scania right here, the last hole... I take my grandson there a lot, four-year-old. He likes it. I mean, he likes to throw the ball in the, where the doors open up and close. <laughs> he goes up and close. That's more fun for him. But he's got a thing about that last hole, because if you put it right into the little tube, a siren goes off, and you get a, a, a free game, whatever. So at first he hears it, he gets scared of it. So he has mixed feelings. He's like, Grandpa, we need to do that, but don't. You know, because we want the free game and we want to ring the bell, but it's a little loud and scary. So, so we get there and he's like, okay, Grandpa, do it, do it. You know, and then he goes, no, don't do it. <laughs> and uh, we go back and forth. But when you do do it, and I have done it, uh, I just want to brag about that. <laughs> Make sure you know. <laughs> Boom, it goes like that. I think I had my eyes closed. That's what worked. <laughs> you know? And boom, it went in and it go, the siren goes off. And this is, what, this is what happened. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And the siren goes off and Jesus' face lights up. And Peter, what, what is the look on Peter's face when he goes, you nailed it, sir. You nailed it. The son of God saying, bam, wow. Blessed are you. It means God's favor, God's joy, God's smile is on you right now. God, who makes the universe, who holds it all together, is paying attention to you, your solitary life. This is a big deal. And the look on Peter's face, I can just imagine. You know why? Peter's not used to this affirmation. He's used to something else. <laughs> he's used to getting scolded. He's used to be told, uh, he's used to be being told, oh, you have little faith. What's wrong with you? Your faith is about this big. What's wrong? What's the matter with you? <laughs> Jesus was half Italian. You didn't know. 
No, he is the incarnation of the Son of God, conceived of the Holy Spirit, fully God, fully man. Just to stop your emails from coming. <laughs> so yeah, I think he's just really, Peter's like, wow, you know, he's got the blessing of God. And so what happened there was the Holy Spirit gave him an utterance, a word of knowledge. He had a word of knowledge, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, a gift of the Holy Spirit manifests in our hearts. He tells you something you could never know without his help. That's a word of knowledge. It's like, aha, I get it, boom. But we always think, oh, I just figured it out. Oh, you never think. And so what, what Jesus is trying to tell Peter and all of us Peters is this that you never, ever come to a spiritual awakening, a beneficial spiritual a wise thought without the revelation, the intervention of God. God is the one who always will go, Bing, open this up to you. You have to have the right heart, a willingness, the right posture. You're asking, you're seeking, you're knocking, and it's God who goes, look at this, boom. You see, you can't know it without him. It's a gift, a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom. And so that's what he's saying. He said, blessed are you by, uh, this has been revealed to you. God has been, listen, at work in you without you even knowing it. Did you know that God the Father was working in your heart right now to bring you to that, Peter? Because I'm telling you, God's smiling on you. And everybody who says Jesus is Lord and believes in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you ring the bell, the same bell, and it opens up God's blessing. And you might as well just fill in your name. Blessed are you. Fill in your name that the Son of God would look at you and say, you figured it out, but it wasn't just you. God has had favor on you out of seven billion lives. You're sitting in church. You are a believer You've had your mind uh, opened up. How did that happen? You didn't just stumble on it. You didn't find the Lord. You did not. He found you. That's more of the way to look at it. And so God just wants everybody to know that when you come to spiritual realizations that bless and set your heart free, it's him. And how... How wonderful is it to know right now in this crazy world that if you know him and you're reading the Bible and it's making sense that God Almighty out of all those seven billion people has singled you out for whatever reason to show you favor and rest his grace upon you. That's just a pretty amazing thought, especially right now. And so... Uh, now we're going to learn all the blessings that flow from just getting one question right, and we finish up with these verses, verses 18 through 20. So now we know the crowds are floundering, the disciples are getting it, they're nailing it, and now Jesus elaborates on what it all means to say Jesus is Lord. And so I like the parallelism here. Because you got to think back how this just happened. Uh, he says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell, Hades, uh, will not overcome it. Um, 
So it's kind of got a sing-song if you pay attention to the last paragraph, and here's what was said. He's kind of saying this, Peter, you know who I am, and I know who you are. There's a sing-song here going on. Look, look. Peter said, you are the Messiah. And he says, and you are Peter. You see that back and forth, right? And he says, yes, verse 18, and you are Peter. And then Jesus does a word play because the word for rock can mean Peter. And, it, and there's another form of the word for rock uh, that you can use that's a different sense of an immovable boulder. And he's saying, you are rocky, all right? And on this rock, I will build my church. He owns the church. He's the Lord of the church. It's not the pastor. He's the main pastor. Let me show you the little play on words to help you explain what he's saying. You are that single stone. So Vine's expository, uh, expository dictionary defines the words differently that are used in the Greek. You are Peter, a single stone, a rock, a piece of a rock. That's what it means, according to the dictionary. And on this different word, not the same word, he's not talking about Peter, or he would use Petros. Doesn't use Petros. So that whatever he's going talking about as the foundation is different. And that word, Petra, and on this rock, gesturing to himself, and on this rock that you just said, your confession, that I'm the son of the living God, and on this, your confession, me, because Petra means immovable rock formation. It's the same word that is used in Matthew 7, where he says, a wise man who hears my words, puts them into practice, is like the guy who builds his house on a rock foundation, immovable. The winds come, the rains beat against the house, and the house stands because it's founded on the slab of rock, not a stone. Peter's the stone, and Jesus Christ is the foundation of salvation. And that is why the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it, because he's the living one. He indwells it. He's the founder. It's God himself. So, uh, and by the way, <clears throat> and the reason I'm going on a little bit about it is because our Catholic friends uh, use that verse to say that Peter was the first pope and that the church was built on the apostles like Peter. Peter was the first one. Well, first of all, you know, the church is not built on any man, especially Peter. And uh, second of all, the New Testament says in Ephesians chapter 2, the apostles and prophets laid a foundation for the church, which was Christ, the chief foundation stone. So there you go. God was using their efforts to help found the church, but Christ is the cornerstone, the most important stone. And, and you know, one more point. First Peter chapter 2, Peter himself says, you know what? We're all like a, a, the temple, spiritually speaking. And we're like living stones that make up the building where God is, right? But he says, we're like living stones all fit together. But Christ Jesus is the foundation stone. There it is again from Peter's own lips, you see. And so Jesus himself, this truth, is the immovable rock outcropping that no matter what comes up in life, 
you will stand because you're founded, you, as a member of the church. Now, by the way, you'll notice in there the word church. It's the very first time it's used in all the Bible. Ecclesia in the Greek. Here's what it means. It means the gathering together of the called out ones. In other words, the Holy Spirit calls us out of death and darkness and sin, the ways of this world. He calls us out of that. He takes us, he removes us, fits us together, gathering. We are the gathering. That is the definition. The church is, by definition, gathered together where each member has a gift and in the context of the gathering is used to serve one another and strengthen the church. You cannot have church unless there are certain conditions. And one of those conditions is in the word church to gather. That is who we are and what we do. And if you don't do it, it's not church. It is not church. You can, uh, one writer said it this way. Let me just go to him. Whatever else the church is or is not, you certainly cannot have church without participating in the gathering. The elders are present. The word is preached. The gifts of the congregation are flowing. The praises are rising in the midst of the gathered assembly. This is church. This is the Bible's definition of church. You can watch a lovely picture of a glowing fire on a television screen. You can watch it on, on TV. You can hear the crackle of the fire. You can, you can see the orange flames. But if you're needing the warmth to restore the numbness, you'll find it no help at all. Go ahead and put your fingers up there. Oh, I got a chill. I need some warmth. You know what? It's not going to happen because it's not the gathering. It's not church. It's not happening. I had somebody come up to me uh, and say, listen, I'm older. I've stayed away for eight months. You know what? It's time to trust God and obey his mandate because he said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And that would include things like microbes and viruses and governors and all kinds of things. <laughs> Sorry. By definition and by command, do not forsake the gathering, the church. We can't do it with restrictions. We can't do it without coming together. And so it's not about defiance of anybody. It's all about obedience to our God and Savior who is in the midst of the gathering, he says. That is church, and that's where you get the warmth of love and the renewal of your mind and the feeding of your soul. There are many people who have shipwrecked their faith well-intentioned, trying to do the right thing. But as that woman told me, she said, you know what? There's something more important than avoiding death. It's called living and serving God and trusting him with my life. Amen? Amen. I'm not going to say that first service applauded, applauded louder than that, but... 
because I wouldn't want you to. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right, I will sign your books after all. <laughs> now, when he says, and by the way, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, this is amazing because he's saying the gates is where the council always was, the strategies, right? The power of death and all that the devil could, could um, come up with and throw at you will fail. Why? Because you, my friend, are part of the church and the church is founded, your life is founded on the Son of God, God himself. Therefore, whatever the devil comes up with will fail. He says it will not prevail against you. And, and listen, as a pastor, I know in a room this size, there are things that have happened to you that should have destroyed you, that should have wiped you out completely, 100%. But look at you. You have a life. You have hope. You're in church. You have a hope and a future. You're restored. How did that happen? You shouldn't be here. Oh, so many of us. But why? Because the son of the living God has taken up residence and knit our souls together with him. And he is indestructible. He is immovable. <laughs> he is the Lord, our God, the rock. And nothing is going to shake him at all. And we're founded on him. And so he says, listen up. He wants us to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. And so I promise to explain this enigmatic uh, verse number 19. He says, listen to you. Listen up, church. He's talking to the church now. He's used the word. He says, I want the church to be the pillar and the foundation of truth. In fact, that's a quote from 1 Timothy chapter 3, right? And so he wants us to be the guardians. The key says that you have authority to, and the word for binding and loosing is very Jewish, and you wouldn't understand it without a little studying. So he's saying to bind something in Jewish thought was to declare forbidden. And to loose something was to allow it or to permit it. So he's saying the church is going to represent salvation, who God is. It's going to, to show the boundaries uh, 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 and, and show with some authority that this is the way to be saved. And this is what he's saying. So on earth, there will be, the church will be the gatekeeper of orthodox Christianity. That's the idea there. So when a sinner wants to know, how do I know God? How do I know my sins are forgiven? Uh, I mean, how do I get to heaven? And all of that. Then the things loosed, we would say, is, well, you have faith through grace, God's grace in Christ who died for your sins and put your faith and trust in him and you'll be saved. And then we, the Christian fundamentals, that's what we lose, right? But what you, what the things that are bound are the boundaries. I had a Christian pastor friend of mine who said somebody went up to him and said, listen, I'm a Christian, 
but I haven't repented of a lifestyle that the world says is okay, and a lot of my friends say is okay, and I'm going to stay this way, but I'm going to love God too. You see, Jesus says, I'm going to give you the key to be able to say what opens the door and what closes the door. And so you can tell him, for me, you're speaking for me, to say, oh, my friend, I'm sorry. Uh, when you're born again, your new life has to honor the commands of God. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And if you say you know him and don't live accordingly, then you're a liar. First John, not my words. First John says that. So, so you're showing him. See, the key opens as you repent of your sin. You're raised to new life. And then you limp along and struggle. You can struggle all you want. Everybody does. Welcome. That will open the door. That will loose open the door. You will go in. But what will be bound and shut is trying to get to heaven in your own works, with multiple gods, with you know rewriting the scriptures to say something they don't say. That's what it means, that the church is the, the go-to guy for all things of salvation. That's exactly what it means. And so uh, we take that responsibility seriously and we guard the faith, right? You know, there's some wiggle room in non-essential things that we can agree to disagree, but there are the major things, and that's what Jesus is talking about, how to get in and how to make sure you don't get that door shut, right? And so, yeah, as we close up here, you know, I got a story for you. Uh, oh, back a long time ago when I was 18, I had a doctor's appointment only one time in Santa Cruz to this one doctor. And I'll never forget it because I sat down and before we started talking about what my problem was, he says, so I got a question for you. Uh, what role does Christ play in your life? And I was like, um... Christ? It sounded like you cussed. You know, I didn't have any context at all for my father wasn't saved yet. I had no concept. And I'm like, what's what? I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, Jesus, Jesus, you've heard of Jesus. And I go, yeah? Like that religious guy? Yeah, right. In the book? Yeah, right. What? And he goes, what role does he play? And I go, I don't have an answer for you. I don't know what you're talking about. And he changed the subject. And so I never saw him again until I got saved and went to Bible college in the same city, Santa Cruz. And I'm up in the hills at Bible college, and there's a chapel speaker, and he looks really familiar. I'm like, where do I know that guy? Where do I know that guy? It's Dr. Petrelli. Dr. Petrelli, the Christian doctor who witnessed to me or tried to start a conversation with me, and he's speaking in chapel. I couldn't wait for chapel to end so that I could get down to Dr. Petrelli and answer the question. <laughs> I mean, I, I, and I'm like waiting and waiting, and I go, hey, listen, Dr. Petrelli, I was at your office. You remember me? You asked me what, uh, who Christ was, and I'm like, I don't know who Christ is. And he, and he goes, yeah, I don't know. I don't remember you. <laughs> and he goes, I do that with all my patients. And, and, and I said, well, oh, come on, ask me. Ask me now. Ask me. And he, and he goes, huh. And I said, no, I'm serious. <laughs> I, want you, I want to answer it so bad. I mean, yeah, just ask me. And he goes, okay, who is Jesus? I go, he's the son of the living God. That's who. And he goes, yeah, very good. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
he made a joke like, well, I'm glad you know that since we're at a Bible college. <laughs> but yeah, to have the right answer to the simple question, who is God of the universe? He's revealed to us in flesh and blood. God is spirit, but guess what? He entered the womb of a human being, God planted himself into a human womb and was born, a, a son was given, a child was born. Do you see that even there in the Christmas uh, scriptures? Fully God, fully man. So he could lay down his life as a sinless offering. No other man could do it. You, nobody, if you're bankrupt, you say, hey, listen, you're, you need some money, I'll help you out. You don't know, you've got your own problems, right? So a sinner can't bail out sinners. So it has to be a man. Oh, but if you're the God-man with no sin, you can offer a pretty nice offering because he was loaded with morality and goodness and righteousness, and he spent it all, laid it down out of love for you and for me. And to know that, to know that name, not only in your head, but in your heart. Just say, I know it in my head, and I live it in my life. That has eternal blessings. Let's pray together. Now, Father God, we look to you. You are our loving Heavenly Father, and you saw fit for whatever reason, God, to reveal your Son to us and through us, in us. How wonderful God, that we should be blessed like that. It seems like all we ever do is cause you problems, God, and all you ever do is try to bless us. And we are so thankful for your long-suffering and evidenced on, in, here at the table of the Lord, communion, uh, the reminder of your broken body and your shed blood on our behalf. We give you thanks for this great love. Help us just to respond, Lord, to rest in your love, to know that the, <laughs> the powers of hell, they've tried and they have failed and they always will because our life is founded on you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.